Welcome to the One Life Maps podcast. Here's your host and co-author of Listen to My Life, maps for recognizing and responding to God in my story, Sharon Swing. Greetings, everyone. I'm so glad you have chosen to join us for another episode of the One Life Maps podcast, where we talk about topics at the intersection of life story and spiritual development. We'll get right to our guest in a minute here, but I wanted to let you know before we get started that April 7th, 2020, we will be starting a virtual Listen to My Life group. So together, in community, from anywhere you are from around the world, you can join in and travel through the eight maps in the Listen to My Life portfolio. And of course, it's always for the purpose of recognizing and responding to God in our stories. So I hope you'll consider joining us. Check out the homepage on our website, onelifemaps.com, for more. Today, I want you to know that we have a special guest. He is the author of a book that's coming out within a couple weeks here. And his name is Chuck DeGroat, and it's When Narcissism Comes to Church, Healing Your Community from Emotional and Spiritual Abuse. Narcissism, it's a topic that uh, might be a little bit difficult uh, for many of us, but I want you to know that uh, we are talking about this today because maybe as you've mapped your life story, you have come to understand that maybe you have some narcissistic tendencies or you have been in relationship with someone who has narcissistic tendencies, or maybe you have encountered people in the midst of the church who have narcissistic tendencies. And so we want to walk into this conversation with our eyes wide open and humble hearts with a lot of hope in redeeming stories. So please welcome our new friend, Chuck DeGroote. Welcome, Chuck. Yeah, thank you. It's really good to be with you. Well, we have an interesting confluence of life story yeah. and spiritual development yeah. between us. Yeah. Chuck is a counselor and a pastor and has some interesting background. Tell us a little bit about how you like to be introduced when it comes to talking about this book. Oh, wow. Uh, that's a great question because in some ways I don't want to be connected to this book. Um, you know, it's it's one of those interesting things you write. I've written several books and... And uh, this is probably probably the book I was most resistant to write, um, in part because it's hard, in part because it implicates my own story, um, in part because uh, we have to talk about really difficult things. And so in a roundabout way, I've been a pastor, a therapist, and now uh, most recently a seminary professor. And so... Uh, as a part of that collective work, I've been doing psychological assessments on pastors and church planners for 15 years now. Lots of consultation with churches, lots of counseling of pastors, uh, and of course, my own participation on several church staffs. And so my own experience with narcissism comes from the stories of clients and uh, churches, narcissistic systems, psychological assessments. Uh, so I feel like in some ways I've been swimming in the waters of narcissism for the whole 20 plus years of my own pastoral ministry. Well, I appreciate that. So why don't we start with, why don't you give a definition for narcissism? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I kind of complexify it in the book. Uh, I'll start with the kind of classic definition that people think of, which is generally some form of grandiosity, sort of a grandiose personality, someone who likes to be on stage, who likes a, a sense of power, authority, uh, coupled with a lack of empathy, 
one of the things that people don't realize often with narcissism is that uh, narcissists, at least people who are diagnosably narcissistic, don't have the capacity to really empathize or, or uh, sort of understand the lived experience of another human being. Um, and then oftentimes the definitions talk about uh, identity impairments, um, and, and that gets it like... Uh, uh, that gets it like vocationally, relationally, there's always volatility going on. And so the classic definition is is generally something that looks a little bit more like the grandiose narcissist. But there are, as I talk about in the book, there are what I call nine faces of narcissism. And they're just different, different characteristics that show up in different people. Uh, uh, some of those versions of narcissism are not quite as grandiose, but they're more quiet and subtle, uh, perhaps passive aggressive. And so, uh, so I, I've got to talk a little bit about this in a nuanced way. Mm, that's interesting. I guess for me, I've encountered some things that make me know that sometimes narcissists are incredibly effective mm -hmm. people. And that also demands some loyalty. Yeah, yeah it, that's it. That's the uh, tricky part of it, right? Is this the sense that they can be incredibly effective because they, you know, they do they do live uh, from a kind of uh, powerful self protective place. I often say that uh, what's going on beneath the surface of someone who's narcissistic is lots of anxiety and lots of shame, but you don't really see that. What you see is the powerful projection, authority, power, expertise, grandiosity. And uh, people like that, particularly men, I'm thinking that the stats really sort of favor men uh, with narcissism, can draw a crowd, uh, can be influential, um, can speak with a kind of th authority that uh, makes people who are under them feel like never before have we uh, learned from or seen uh, someone as gifted, as uh, effective, as influential as this person. And so that part of it is, is really kind of tricky and sometimes even crazy making. Right. So the title of your book is When Narcissism yeah, Comes to Church. Yeah. So why is it, you mentioned some statistics about uh, people with narcissistic yeah. tendencies gravitating toward toward a certain kind of yeah. leadership. Can you say more about that? Uh, yeah. Well, so uh, I, I do think that people who uh, gravitate to narcissistic leaders, let's say, um, and, and this is this is a whole other conversation, and. Um, uh, yeah, really sort of implicates most of us who are listening. You know, we're drawn to narcissistic leaders oftentimes because of our own story of shame or fear, insecurity, our need for someone to sort of mirror back to us a sense that we're okay. And so we align with someone who's powerful. Uh, in a sense, it makes us feel kind of powerful. You know, we align with someone who has some sense of weight or influence because by extension, we feel important ourselves. I remember back many, many years ago, uh, while I was in seminary, being connected to a person who had sort of a, a gravitational pull, if that's a if that's actually a word or a phrase. I mean, just pulled other men into his orbit, and many of us, uh, many of us, saw him as kind of uh, infallible, smart, gifted, charismatic, and many of us were. Uh, 
a bit insecure, uh, anxiety, shame-based. And so back then I wasn't quite aware of my story. I hadn't done any of my own work and it took some time to realize that I attached myself to him for a sense of, uh, for a sense of my own self. And, uh, that, that can get many of us who've uh, worked with, been in relationship with narcissists, attended churches led by narcissists, that can really set some of us up for uh, for some profound disappointment and pain. Well, and some great opportunity for yeah, self-discovery. Right. But the I, I think part of the reason that of people I've listened to uh, over time is that their sense of, a narcissist's sense of authority um, helps people who are following them to also feel some sense of uh, yeah, that's security. Right. Like, oh, I, I can believe that they're right and they're on the right track. So that means that if I believe what they believe, then then I'm believing that's right. Yeah, as well. Yeah. So, and that plays out in a, in a lot of different ways. Uh, I was a part of a tradition where we would grab onto narcissistic leaders for some sense of certainty or theological correctness or rightness. It may be more around charisma or it may be more around a spiritual experience. Uh, there are narcissistic leaders and pastors who are activists and it may give us some sense of purpose in the world. So whatever it is, we've got to become aware of our own stories and how our stories are implicated in it. Um, and so, uh, so in, in that sense, it requires us to do, do some work around, well, where have I, where have I experienced some pain or trauma in my own life? Or where do I feel some sense of deficiency or lack? And how am I looking for the answer to that outside of myself in some person, uh, with influence or power? Mm. It's so true. And I know that, that from listening to some people who have, who have been in churches where there might be a narcissistic leader, if that narcissistic leader um, who has been wildly effective and very influential in someone's life in very many positive ways, if they have a, a hiccup or they have a fall, whatever it is, then it's attached to their own belief system in a way that makes them kind of unravel or deconstruct their own faith. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it not only impacts one's own story. And so, you know, I've got to look at, so why, you know, why did this happen? Why was I drawn to him or her? But yeah, I think you're right. It, um, it also connects to, well, this is what I believed for so long because he believed it, or this is what I participated in because he asked me to participate in it. Or these are the people who are on the outside who I condemned because she told me that they were the people worthy of condemnation. And so you'll often find people who wake up to their own experience of following a narcissistic leader. They often go through a season of disorientation, deconstruction, uh, certainly lots and lots of questions that lead them to evaluate almost every area of their lives. Right. So a narcissistic person only gains power because there are other people that give it to them. And um, so generally that includes a huge percentage of us, a huge percentage of the population that at some point in their lives, we encounter a narcissistic narcissistic person, or we are one mm-hmm. ourselves in a, in, a, in in some circumstance, where we have participated in a, in a certain kind of unhealth and yeah. craziness. 
that's hard to unravel, which is just so disheartening. Yeah, so disheartening. Uh, one of the things that I'm finding, so so this book comes out, uh, we're recording this a couple of weeks before it comes out, I guess, but, you know, it, beforehand, I'm discovering all the all the interesting dynamics of having a launch team. I've never had a launch team before. And so we've got about 150 people on a launch team on a Facebook page. And what's happening is uh, they're finding this, this space to be a safe space to begin to tell stories of their own pain. And uh, not only are they describing how they've been hurt, but they're also now beginning to put words to uh, why they were drawn in the first place or what sucked them in or what, what they're awakening to in their own life that drew them into this relationship. And so, so to, to go down this road uh, is uh, I think involves some courage or requires some courage because it, it invites us uh, to look at our own life, to look at our own stories, relationships, uh, beliefs, uh, vocation, and more. I I don't know that we can move around this topic without talking about gaslighting. What is it? Because, I mean, this is all about opening our eyes to something that is a dynamic that is in play in different places. And we want to be people who are aware. So what, what does it look like? And what is, yeah, so what is, in, what is yeah. gaslighting to start out with? And then tell me more about what else we should yeah. be looking for in ourselves and in situations that yeah right into. right so gaslighting is really a subtle form of of emotional or psychological abuse um oftentimes if we're not familiar with abuse we think of uh we might we might be more familiar with physical abuse someone punches someone in the eye and so there's a bruise in their eye emotional abuse uh does not require a physical bruise emotional abuse is is more relational in in nature it's a it's a sharp word it's ignoring another person it's a passive aggressive now gaslighting is a kind of manipulative strategy uh that uh that makes another person question their own reality and so gaslighting is is particularly crazy making we like to say because after a while, you begin to wonder, is this, is this really true? Maybe this is me. So if you're in relationship with someone who gaslights you, maybe it's a narcissistic pastor who's convinced you that you're really, you really don't have anything to offer uh, the church staff or the organization, or you're really not as smart as you thought you were, or uh, you're really not that good of a community, whatever it might be, you begin to accept that as reality about yourself. And uh, after a while, and I've worked with plenty of folks like this in relationships with gaslighters, you, you really begin to question reality on the whole. Um, am I crazy? Is there something wrong with me? I'm not even sure if up is up and down is down. Um, it's, it's a really sort of psychologically dependent relationship on um, someone who is powerful and, and has the ability and the power in your life to make you question reality. Their opinion of you ends up being reality, right? Uh, yeah, so important, yeah. and and your sense of self being wrapped up in what yeah. their opinion is. Yeah, and so then that's how you begin to define yourself, and and it's it's sad because it's uh, generally so much smaller than God's vision for you. It is so much smaller, not generally. It's always so much smaller than God's grand vision for you as an image bearer. It usually focuses on some point of brokenness in your life. In other words, there's enough truth so that let's just say you you had an experience in your early childhood 
childhood of being sexually abused and you've got a narcissistic husband or, or leader who says, you know, you, of course, that's your abuse speaking. You don't understand. Um, you're not reading, you're not reading what I'm doing. I'm, I'm not being manipulative. I'm being kind to you, but you take everything the wrong way. And so he, he prays or she prays upon your brokenness and the brokenness of your story. Um, that's what makes it uh, just so devastating and dehumanizing. What other things might we need to be recognizing if we happen to be in relationship with a narcissist? A, a lot of this is geared in the direction of how narcissism shows up in the church. And so there's this uh, sort of added element whenever we involve um, uh, people who find themselves in this space in which God is supposed to be present, you know, where we're we're trusting a pastor, for instance, or a leader in the church to speak into our lives w- with a with a sense of God's authority, right? And so, one of the conversations we need to have is not just a conversation about emotional or psychological abuse, but spiritual abuse, which is a uh, you know, in, in some ways, it's actually a far more devastating form of emotional abuse because now you uh, inject the sacred, you know. And so uh, I, I worked a few years ago with a woman who was spiritually, emotionally and sexually abused by a pastor. There was a really uh, clear abuse of power, but she trusted him because he was a pastor. And in fact, it began through a pastoral counseling relationship that, that moved into a more intimate relationship. And, and he said to her over and over again, it's not wrong because I'm a man of God and you're a woman of God. And, and there were these kinds of things like this where she said, of course, it's not wrong. He's so-and-so um, who could never do anything hurtful. Look at the books he's written, the influence he's had. Uh, and so her own recovery, think about the layers now, the sexual abuse, emotional abuse, spiritual abuse. She's questioning the reality of God, the goodness of God. How, God, how could you let this happen? I wasn't only sexually abused, but I was but I was drawn in, but I was also also spiritually abused by someone who went through a seminary, went through an ordination process, was approved by many many others a- along the way. Uh, just absolutely devastating. Well, then that makes it even harder to speak up against. It makes it so hard. And, you know, in her case, uh, uh, her ability to speak was really quelled by by having to sign a non-disclosure agreement. And so, which that's a whole other complicated part of this. But oftentimes, uh, these folks have so much power that they, they can threaten you with um, sometimes with uh, your livelihood, your reputation, or um, other palpable things that at some point you just want to get out. And so you choose to get away. You choose to just not talk about it for 10 years. You choose to sign a non-disclosure agreement. You choose to get a divorce. You choose to leave the church staff. And then it comes up later, you know, and I know there've been uh, over the last couple of years, some high profile stories of, of abuse and deception within the church. And having known some of the folks who've been involved in, in these kinds of things, uh, there, there are often people who go back further in the story who say, I never said anything because I, I didn't feel like I could. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that giving rise to the uh, church. Yeah, church too. too. Uh, yeah. And, and all as well. So what hope do yeah. we have? I mean, it, I, 
I think there's there's this aspect we're talking about narcissists and in terms of they mm. might be them. Yeah. But um how do we notice yeah. it in ourselves? That's a good question. One of the things that comes up often and I'll I'll get like uh direct messages on social media from people who say, uh, how do I know I'm not a narcissist? You know, and I often say the fact that you're asking the question is uh, sort of a first key to me that that you're probably not, you know, curiosity isn't necessarily a trait of someone who's narcissistic. Um, Self-protection is, defensiveness is. And so uh, I mentioned that I've done many, many psychological assessments over the years, and I've had a good number of pastors over the years who have been on the narcissistic spectrum, which doesn't necessarily mean that they are diagnosably narcissistic personality disorder, but they're on some sort of continuum or spectrum. And I will know as soon as I bring it up, and I'll bring it up ever so subtly. I'll say, hey, I, we need to have a conversation because on this particular test, uh, do you remember the test? Yes, I remember the test. Yeah, on, on this one, you you actually are on the spectrum uh, of narcissism. And I, I'd just like to reflect with you on what that is. And you know, some of these folks who I'm, I, mostly men who I'm doing this work with, they might intervene right at that point and say, no way or I knew it, you psychologists are all the same. You're always looking at, you know, or others will say, "Ah, you know, I wondered about that. I suspected that that might be there. And I'd really like to have an honest conversation about that because I, I don't want to have blind spots and I want to know how to grow. And so a lot of this has to do with curiosity, uh, self-awareness, a willingness to be aware of our emotions, our needs, uh, uh, our stories, which sometimes include trauma, and pain, and abuse, that kind of curiosity goes a long way for me. Hmm. So what is the path yeah. toward healing in, in a church? Because there have been quite a few yeah. of late um, in the last few years here where there have been large churches that yeah. have been affected um, and stories come out in a way that that left a lot of rubble behind. So what's the path towards? Yeah. So I think we have to look at this on multiple levels. I mean, I think there's a, there's an individual's path to healing, right? Which uh, if you've been hurt or abused means doing the work of looking at your own story, looking at how you were abused, um, sometimes looking at your own participation in abusive systems. And so that's one level of it, you know, and for, for, you know, the work that you and I do around people's stories, that's a a really, I'd say, significant part. Um, I think for churches to heal, for groups of people to heal, that's, uh, that's a lot more complicated, right? And I think at least a part of that means taking seriously what's happened. And that requires some truth telling. And oftentimes churches, groups of people, they kind of want to tell the very least that they need to tell. Um, I've seen this with elder, like, what do we need to say? Cause we don't want to say everything. <laughs> and, and oftentimes leaving people in the dark actually provokes more suspicion and mistrust and paranoia. And so what does it look like? I always ask for a community that has been through narcissistic leadership, you know, toxic system, abusive leadership, gaslighting, whatever it is to engage in some truth telling about, uh, about the many layered aspects of, of toxicity within the church, um, for, for leaders to own their own complicity or participation in it. 
what does it look for like for a church to communal, communally lament and grieve um, and and uh, take a season, n- not simply to sort of find the next the next guy to hire, the next woman to hire, you know, the next leadership team, but to actually say, you know, we've got some work to do, we've got some healing to do. Um, and what's it look like for churches to bring in outsiders who have some expertise to, expertise in these multiple levels of healing, whether it might be therapists on an indiv- individual level, or perhaps an investigator who can get at what really happened, or some sort of consultant that would allow groups of people to talk with one another in order to do the work of, of listening and possibly reconciling and healing in that way. Um, the, the last thing I'll say is uh, I people sometimes find me a little too hopeful when it comes to these kinds of things, because I think sometimes we look at these in binary ways, like you're either bad or good, you're either narcissist or not. And I see each and every human being as an image bearer. And so uh, when I'm working with someone who uh, who is nar- diagnosably narcissistic, for instance, and I've, I've worked with plenty of men like this uh, who've done some damage, I'm I'm not only looking at that person as a diagnosis. There may be a diagnosis there, but I'm not looking at them um, solely for what they've done or the diagnosis that they have. I've got to look at that person as an image bearer. And so I've got to see that there's a larger story at work and probably a story of immense pain, uh, perhaps uh, a story of being bullied or traumatized in such a way that they become the bully or the traumatizer. And so I, I've got to go into those situations relentlessly hopeful because I think God in Jesus is re- relentlessly hopeful with us and pursues us even in the midst of our own hiddenness and self-sabotage. Oh, how true. How true. I mean, as we, as we walk around this topic and, and all, it just seems so ripe for all of us to be able to yeah. do some self-reflection is because if you're not a narcissist, then we probably, if you, and if you've been in relationship with one for long, for any period of time, there's probably all kinds of self-reflection yeah. to be done. And people who do the work and you know this, cause we both work with people's stories. They, they do eventually, if they, they start to do the inner work and they take seriously how they've been hurt, uh, Lo and behold, after a little while, it might be a, a few months, it might be a few years, we'll say, ah, oh, wow, you know, I actually, you know, I, I actually made some choices in this too. And um, I've, I've got to see how I actually played a role or I was complicit. And, you know, so I never, ever force anyone to go there, of course, um, but that's something that does come up. And, and that can be a significant part of, of healing work as well. But, you know, in that, I'd never, ever want someone who was, for instance, abused by, by a pastor who had power over them to think, well, this was just an equal thing, you know, um, because there is an unequal sort of po- power relationship there that's happening. Um, but, but it can sometimes be healing in, in when we do our story work to say, yeah, um, and this is why I was drawn. This part of my story is why I was drawn to him. It doesn't make it okay. Just the other day, I was teaching uh, some Master of Divinity students about transference and counter-transference in relationships. And I, I said, you know, you will have people come to you and they, they project onto you uh, perfection. Like, I've never met anyone as wonderful as you, as perfect as you, uh, as good a listener as you, you know. And so people do, they bring their own stuff. And we've got to be self-aware enough as, as leaders 
to know what's going on. I call it the invisible energy in the room, you know, uh, and and to faithfully care for and, and love uh, love a person who might even bring that pull into the room, you know, to um, uh, to to elevate you in a particular kind of way. It doesn't surprise me, having been a pastor for a long time and ha- have have had congregations and people who uh, I served with and served. It doesn't surprise me how pastors can become narcissistic because we've got plenty of people in our lives saying, there's no one like you. No one's ever preached like you. No one's ever written like you. No one's ever said the healing words like you say, you know, and we might actually believe that after a while if we haven't done our inner work. Believe our right. Own yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's plenty of unhealth to sort out and uh, and and try to be yeah. made right here. So, what are some of the spiritual practices that we might engage in that might lead us back to a right perspective on who we are, who other people are, as well yeah. as who God is? Well, I mean, I I think practices. I, I for me, the the very starting point is um, practices of relationship and community. Um, that might be a group that you gather with each week where you're known um, and seen and loved. Um, there's no question more powerful than a question that you ask to someone who really knows you, uh, how do you experience me? Um, to have someone who really knows you say, yeah, I, I sometimes experience a, uh, a pull from you where you, you sort of need to be affirmed a lot or uh, you can come across as kind of arrogant sometimes. And so practices that cultivate uh, knowing um, being seen uh, in relationship. And there are all kinds of different ways of doing that. I'm thinking of spiritual direction groups. I'm thinking of spiritual direction, period. I, I do think also practices of, of awareness, whether that practice includes something like contemplative prayer or the Ignatian examine, um, practices that invite us to look at our lives, look at our stories. I know the Ignatian examine has a particular way of doing that, that utilizes um, the church calendar and invites you into a, a kind of practice of engaging the story of God and your own story. And so I, I would say uh, there's not one particular practice, but there are practices that we might be more or less inclined to that wake us up to ourselves, wake us up to our own story, sometimes wake us up to our own trauma. I've had people come to me who through the doorway, dare I say it, of yoga, you know, because I know some people are against yoga, um, wake up to pain in their own bodies and trauma in their own bodies. I didn't realize when I did that particular yoga position that I would remember sexual abuse in my life. And now awakened, they begin to connect the dots of an abusive marriage and uh, being a part of a church in which the pastor has been uh, uh, toxic for many, many years, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so there are many, many doorways Um, It takes courage, the courage to be present to your own life, to your own story, to your own pain. As as you talk about in your stuff, both the peaks and the valleys of your life, and to take those seriously and to be honest about them. Uh, But I think it begins in relationship. And the sad thing to me is that so many of us find ourselves in churches, but don't find ourselves known. And uh, I've had more people say to me, I I'm more known on Wednesday night at church than I am on Sunday. And of course, Wednesday night is when they go to their Alcoholics Anonymous meeting or something like that. And so um, can our churches become places where, um, you know, Charles Spurgeon once said over a hundred years ago, uh, tear off your mask. The church was never meant to be a masquerade. 
Um, can it be a place of safety? Can it be a place where we can be known? Um, I'd love to see it. Uh, finally, I'd love to see this anchored in um, places like the baptismal font, the communion table, where we remember our deepest identity as, as baptized children of, of God and at the table where we, uh, we, where we commune with God and one another, where we come with open hands and vulnerable to be, to be fed in a world where we're always grasping and controlling. And uh, so I think that there are plenty of practices available to us as Christians. Um, what's sad to me is, as you said earlier, as we see the implications of Me Too and, and Church Too and, uh, and in and among churches that we've loved for a long time and pastors that we've revered, it's like, how could this be happening here of all places um, for people who follow Jesus, a humble, suffering servant? Um, to fall into patterns of grandiosity and power and prestige and privilege. It's just so sad. Yes. As we, as we gather in churches as collections of sinners, um, it's not that yeah, terribly that's right. surprising that's right. after all. But yet to, to, find, to find healthy church, healthy relationships, healthy places of belonging where we can, where we can mm-hmm. be vulnerable, um, is that's that's yeah. what I pray for. Amen. Yeah. Places of belonging in yeah. that kind of way. So yeah. thank you. Thank you so much for joining me yeah. for this conversation. Yeah, so much you, appreciate Sharon. it. So this conversation has been with Chuck DeGroat and he has written a book When Narcissism Comes to Church, but he is also the author of actually, why don't you name the other books that you have written? that people might be interested in finding. The first one was Leaving Egypt, Finding God in the Wilderness Places, followed by Toughest People to Love. Um, I think it's like how to love, lead, understand the difficult people in your life, including yourself. So you might want to read that one before the narcissism book. Followed by Wholeheartedness, which is really, uh, you know, this, this this emerged after Brene Brown came onto the scene. And I had a lot of people when I was serving as a pastor out in San Francisco say, so how do we understand wholeheartedness as Christians? And what does that mean? And and mm-hmm. I actually say, yeah, actually, wholeheartedness is a deep part of Scripture and our tradition. So let's talk about it. A um, mm-hmm. little Lenten devotional called Falling into Goodness, um, which I'm really proud of. And then uh, the Narcissism book. Well, congratulations on all of those. Yeah, and thank I know you. that uh, we're, what's the date uh, that this uh, new book will be available? St. Patrick's Day, March 17th. Yeah. so Buy it on yeah. Amazon right now. When narcissism comes to church, if you find that that might be something helpful to you, if this conversation has brought up something from your story, um, we want to pray for you, hope that you can find um, hope and healing in the midst of this conversation by being able to recognize some things that might have happened uh, to you or maybe someone that you know and love and to be able to open up some good, honest conversations with some safe people that might lead toward that kind of healing um, that is available for all of us who um, have found ourselves in the midst of in, in some relationship with a narcissist or maybe actually found some of it in ourselves. So for all of us who are on this journey of, uh, of hope and healing, uh, what I pray for you. We, by the way, we're doing a Listen to My Life uh, virtual group. Maybe you've heard about this before or not. 
it is going to start April 7th. So we invite you to join us for that, where we'll be going through the entire Listen to My Life process with the eight uh, visual maps. You can find out more about that at onelifemaps.com, O-N-E-L-I-F-E-M-A-P-S.com. And uh, Chuck, is there any any um, events or other kinds of things that you want to invite people into that they can find out about maybe your website? Everything uh, should be on my web- website, chuckdegroat.net, and uh, my blogging. You can subscribe to that there. Uh, I'm, I'm always out and about doing something or another, uh, and uh, so, and and I get out to some churches sometimes. So if you have a, a retreat you want me to lead or some sort of church event or something like that, I'm always open to those kinds of opportunities too. So chuckdegroat.net. Spell it. Yes, C H U C K D E G R O A T. Net. Very good. Thanks again so much. Yeah, and thank you. Many blessings for the rest of your day. Yeah. Goodbye, everybody. Have you thought, I don't know myself anymore? Have you wondered, is there something more? Are you at a crossroads in life and asking, which way will lead me toward expressing more of who I am made to be? Are you looking for a way to understand the restlessness you feel inside? Are you seeking a deeper spiritual life and desire to rediscover who you are through God's eyes? You're ready for the life mapping experience of Listen to My Life. Go to onelifemaps.com to purchase your portfolio of visual life maps. While you're there, check out our upcoming virtual coaching groups, live workshops, and options for you to facilitate the Listen to My Life experience with others. That's onelifemaps.com. O-N-E-L-I-F-E. M-A-P-S dot com.